0: Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with a key, long-serving figure in New York dance music history. Dennis Ferrer is probably best known for his 2009 vocal house hit Hey Hey, but there is much more to his story than hooky Big Room Productions. Growing up in the South Bronx in the early 80s, he had a front row seat for an especially vibrant period in New York music. After working in the burgeoning hip-hop scene, he turned his sights to techno, launching Sinewave Records with a 12-inch under the Morph alias with Damon Wilde in 1994. Years later he found a mentor in Kerry Chandler, who coaxed him back into the game as a house artist. Since then, he's become a coach and mentor in his own right. He gave the Martinez brothers their first gig when they were still in high school, and now they're among house music's biggest celebrities. Along the way he's accumulated all kinds of crazy stories and quite a bit of wisdom too, which he imparts during this interview with RA staff writer Max Pearl. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on Soundcloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Dennis Ferrer is up next.
1: here with Dennis Ferrer. This is Max Pearl for the Resident Advisor Exchange Podcast. Hey. We're here in Queens, New York City. What's up, everybody? You just had a bit of a, a nightmare ride out here from Jersey. Yeah, it's the New York traffic. I, sh- I, I know I should be accustomed to it
2: since I am from New York, but uh, who likes to sit in traffic? Uh, nobody. So um, the good thing was that it was nice weather. It is, uh, not was, it is nice weather. It's sunny outside. And uh, it's in what I think high seventies,
1: so it's amazing right now. Got the sunroof down. Sunroof down, windows
2: open, rocking Biggie Smalls. Hell yeah! <laughs> Hell yeah.
1: So um, I want to start at the beginning, and I want to ask you. So you grew up in the shadow of Yankee Stadium, yes, in, sir, in the South Bronx, yes, sir. Can you uh, set the scene? What was what was your neighborhood like growing up?
2: Ooh, nineteen eighty. Uh, it was the start, basically. I, I remember that the most, 1980. Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium off of Jerome Avenue and Shakespeare. Block parties in the summer. And by block parties, I'm talking about people just bringing their equipment out in the street and plugging it up to light poles. So we'd have the Serwin Vega bass bins and a huge PV amps. I think they were the- P-800s, I'm not sure what they were. I remember they were P, I thought they were P-800s, hooked into the light pole, you know, and us acting like, hey, you know, we don't have anything going on. Yeah, we've got big gem sound speakers and hip hop blaring through these speakers and four turntables. But I guess the cops had decided, hey, better that, you know, they're they're having fun and DJing and all the kids are in one spot. Why create a big, you know, mess um, and stop it you know, and have them doing other criminal activities. So they, they would let these parties just go on and be block parties, man. It'd be like five, six hundred kids and everybody, you know, dancing to hip hop, you know, at the start of hip hop. Uh, I mean, at that point, it was like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Fat Boys. Wow, it was, it was just a really tough time. And it was, you know, just before, the, you know, crack, just before that lawlessness, you know, 42nd was still all porn theaters and Kung Fu theaters. Best part about 40 Deuce was that you got to see Kung Fu movies for $3 $4, $5 in a row. So you would cut school, cut class at 12 o'clock, and you wouldn't come out till like 5 o'clock. You saw three Kung Fu movies. Problem was the cops were waiting for you. Of course. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the school cops. Um
1: what do they get you on? What do they call it when they get you for skipping school? I forgot what it was. There's it a called. term for it. It was P with the P. Truancy.
2: truancy. Truancy, that's right. <laughs> truancy patrol.
1: Thank you for that. Man. It's the truancy patrol.
2: Uh, and they 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 would hem they would hem you up in the vans, you know, with like 20 other kids. At that time, um, it was an amazing musical landscape. Hip hop was just really gathering momentum and stabilizing, becoming a, big money thing. You know, it wasn't so much big money um, in it, but now it's starting to become a, an enterprise, you know, big, big money-making thing. And we loved it. You know, graffiti was big. Everybody's tagging up everybody, you know, fights over crossing out names. Were you, Were
1: you like, rapping or b-boying or anything at that I time? I always
2: wanted to make music, my thing. I, I started DJing a bit when I was, like, 11, and we would have battles because my friend, my friend's older brother had the equipment. Peter's brother, Kenny, had the equipment. And um, belt drive turntable. Yeah, man, it was belt. <laughs> it was like it was. It wasn't even belt. It was like a rubber band. It was like S O B ones. I think they were, they were. I think they were S O B ones, if I remember correctly. It was rubber bands, man. And you had to slide that thing. And if if you messed up a mix, there wasn't. It was unforgiving. Yeah, man, those were, those were fun days, really, really fun days, but also scary days because I remember being like 14 and 15 and growing up in those circumstances, and every year would be like, hey, man, you know, am I going to make it to 16? Am I going to make it to 17? And I remember my friend Kenny getting a Mirage, an Sonic Mirage sampler, yeah. and um, him making like these beats with it, and that was like magic for me, man. It was a magic. It was a magic. New York had character. I mean, it still does but it ain't the character from when i was young. Right. It was like you didn't know if you were living the next day and it went and, and that went for everybody. It didn't matter what class you were from, what ethnicity. It was like if you walked across the street, you you thought is today going to be that day. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. So my understanding of the way the musical landscape was at the time was if you were a DJ, it wasn't like you only played hip-hop or you only played electro. No, man. I got the sense that everyone was sort of playing everything.
2: Dude, it was crazy. I I remember going to the Palladium and seeing David Morales play, right? And from one one, one record, it'd be like, you know, the Far Side, She Keeps Passing Me By, to like, you know, the Jungle Brothers, I House You. It, It was crazy because it was never... It, and, and to tell you the truth, records weren't really, you know, the whole night mixed until like maybe in the late late 80s, early 90s when that kind of phenomenon started. But sometimes they'd just be like, Bew! and a hip hop record came on and you were like, what?
1: Or like a quick mix where you use the drum roll, yeah, 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 to like, yeah, doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo,
2: doo-doo, 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 boom, and back in a disco record, and you just never, and, and the whole night, the whole night, you heard all different types of dance music. It just wasn't, it wasn't house. It just wasn't hip hop. It was all sorts. You, ha- I mean, reggae was big in New York, you know. So you, you hear broader than Broadway, you know. All of a sudden, pop out, and everybody would lose their damn natural minds. So that's what I really appreciate and I miss about the musical landscape in New York because the music was so diverse and everybody, it didn't matter where you came from or, or who you were, it was on when, when, rec- when a good record came on, a good song that you can sing and you remember to. Yeah, that, that, that's, I kind of miss that.
1: Was there any radio that played a role? Like, do you remember, were there any particular programs or stations? I that... mean,
2: there was tons. You had WBLS, you had KISS FM. Um, you know, Hot 97 didn't come in, into play till a long time later. It was WKTU with Paco. And um, there they were a lot of, class. you know, classic good music stations, man. Like where, you know, and then you had Red Alert come on at night, you know, and, and Mr. Magic. And, you know, and then you had, you know, the video music box, you know,
0: mm, and, and on New York Ralph, Uncle
2: Ralph, you know, and th- bless his heart. I mean, that, I, we, used to, we used to race home from school to watch that, you know, just to watch Nucleus, you know, the Nucleus video jam on it or something like that, you know. That was like the public
1: access channel, right? Yeah, yeah, the yeah, free yeah, yeah, cable. It was, it was free,
2: man. There, yeah. there was no MTV back then, you know, so those videos that popped on there was like, woo, you know, we were on.
1: Were you like a club kid? Like were you going out, hanging out? Like in, in I was too poor her. to.
2: Mm. Um 167th and Jerome and Morningside and and Morrisania section in the Bronx, man. I mean, if you lived there, you didn't you didn't really have that kind of money to go out. You just didn't. You hustled. Um everybody did what they could, you know, to make ends meet. Um and me going out was Friday night when my friend's looking for a party to crash. You have to understand that in the Bronx at this time, there was house parties happening on Friday and Saturday nights everywhere. And it was no big deal to walk up into a front of an apartment and just be like knocking on the door where you hear the music. And everybody says, oh, hey, what's up, man? Uh, Oh, do you mind? And they'd be like, yeah, come on in, man. Enjoy yourself as long as you don't create no trouble. Or if you knew somebody at the party, you know, or your friend was at, at this house party and you stride in, all the furniture from the living room was gone. It was in somebody's bedroom. So it was like a big dance on and everybody's dancing. One strobe light, the kitchen was sectioned off because the turntables were in in the the archway between the kitchen and the living room, and in the bathroom the bathtub was full of ice, Budweiser beer, and in the kitchen you know in the kitchen was food. So you go get yourself some food, and everybody be up against the wall, b boy style, you know, like hands across their you know, across their chest, and then you know looking who whose chick we gonna hit on to dance with and not get killed that night. So it it, it was it was a really crazy atmosphere, and um. We didn't really start going clubbing until, you know, we were a little little bit older, 16, 17, you know, and they had the 18 and over clubs, you know. And, you know, we'd always kind of try to get into Palladium or, you know, or the Tunnel or, you know, Tanceteria, the usual spots, the usual spots that more people have talked about forever. But if you came from the Bronx, it wasn't that easy for you. That's how it happened.
1: The a lot of a lot of the early '90s records mm-hmm. you did, or some of the early '90s records you did, were were very techno, like yes. the sine wave records for yeah. for Damien Wild. Mm. Um, were you hanging with the techno crowd? Like, were you out there with Adam X and mm-hmm. Frankie this, Bones at the Storm rave? Like,
2: yeah, I would go to see Frankie Bones at Storm rave and Caesar's Bay when he did the big one at Caesar's Bay Bazaar. I think it was in Brooklyn, yeah. And when they had uh, the record shop down downtown, uh, what the hell was it called? not Sonic, was it Sonic Groove? Sonic Groove. It was Sonic Groove, right? Wow, my memory, wow. Ooh, it's coming back a little bit. Uh, Well, the way I got into that was um, I had moved to another part of the Bronx when I was a a bit of a teenager, and and I was making music. I was making hip-hop. And I got really tired of keeping a handgun, believe it or not, underneath my mixing console because, you know, just things got kind of crazy, you know, in hip-hop. You know, and I just really didn't want to live that life. I'm not. I'm not like that. I didn't want to live that life. I, I I didn't. I just didn't want to, man. And so, I remember hearing some techie stuff and saying, "Yo, you know, this is kind of cool. We can use some hip hop elements." Because at that point, it was like, um, it was it, it was breakbeat techno, you know, with the surgeon. All right, surgeon, and he was a master. I remember the song, this this one thing he did, it was like, I like to smoke marijuana, some kind of crazy shit with the a Jamaican break beat in it. And and it was technos by, by the surgeon, I think. It was amazing. And then I heard I heard I got there the very first day they got the Aphex Twin Digeridoo come in. And it was like, Oh, this just came in today. I was like, Aphex twin didgeridoo? I was like, what what the fuck is this? Excuse my language, but I was like, what is this? I said, oh, this is so hot, you know? And coming from techno, I mean, coming from hip hop, hearing breakbeat in another form kind of blew my mind. Mm -hmm. I was like, so wait a minute, I can still do what I love to do technically, but without the risk associated, and yet do something different and cool. I'm with that, screw this. So I started playing around, and um I had some stuff signed to Big Beat Atlantic when I was a very young, you know, kinda fibbed my way into getting a, a label deer there. And I met Damon Wilde. Oh no, wait, Damon Wilde came later. Uh I think it was Tetsu and Tetsu Tetsu Inoue who was um who did a lot of stuff with Phil, Phil Lam, uh, Namlock and um and Adam Hart. He's like he's like an ambient god, this dude. This dude was he he, he was off his rocker when it came to making ambient records. And he's the one who kind of showed me techno. And um, that's how I got involved. And so now here goes this kid from the projects who's living in Soundview section in in Bronxdale, you know, off Rosedale Avenue. And all you hear is bleepity bleeps, bleep bleeps coming out the projects. And all my friends downstairs are like, yo, when you going to play some hip hop, yo, what's with this bleepity bleepy shit? Right? And this is like 1990 all right. It was freaking insane. 132 BPMs. Yo, those poor guys downstairs, man. And my neighbors, my neighbors hated my. They hated life when I was there.
1: Well, techno at that time was also really fast and really rugged man. and raw, yeah, right? It was, like it was rough. 140
2: sometimes. Yeah, you Yeah, know? I mean, if you did if you did GABA, you know, like Lenny D, you were you were way you were way up there. You know, it was just like. Pfft snare roll. That's the whole record. Thank you very much. (laughs) And you left. Um, so yeah. And then Richie and, and Carl, and those were all, you know, they were very young when I was doing it too. Um, so did you
1: have early encounters with, with
2: Richie or Carl? Not so much Richie. Um, I remember Carl from way back, but he didn't remember me till later. Uh, Carl. And then when I, when I saw Carl in Japan, it was like, who the hell is this kid up here messing with knobs? It was hilarious. And Rolando, uh, I remember Rolando from way back. Uh, you know, the um, the advent. You know, Damon Wild, uh, Damon. I I I basically we had started Sine Wave together. Basically, uh, that's the, that's the real story. The real story was um, he wanted to start a label, and he started and he, and he came up with sign wave and we did it together for a, for a time. And unfortunately I didn't have the funds or the money to kind of put in what, what, what everyone kind of says should have been my weight. But I was young, man. I was, you know, 19, 20 years. Old. I don't have that kind of money. So I got angry and I said to hell with everybody and I pulled out. And that's why I, I abruptly left the sine wave thing. I did an album with him you know as Morph on Beachwood Music EMI which a lot of people don't know I did that album with him uh, I did Storm you know Stormwatch a record called Stormwatch um, I did several things several techno things but I just don't say anything about it I kind of cuz that's kind of a part of life that I kind of want to forget mm-hmm. because it's it's kind of very traumatic to me you know because you you, you worked so hard to get good at what you were, you, you 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 do he worked so hard to build something, and then someone kind of like pulls the rug out from under you. I mean, I get where he was coming from. I, I don't I don't blame Damon for anything. I, you know, I love him to death still for the opportunity he gave me. Um, but still, it's a kid's dream. You know, and he I don't think he really knows what happened. I don't I don't think he believes he knows what really happened. What how, how that affected me? He just knows I got mad and I left and I went to work at Rogue Music. You know, and everybody knows me from Rogue Music, from selling analog gear from when I was a kid. You know, I've been, I was there for years. <laughs> I met everybody there. So Rogue is the instrument shop in, what, downtown Manhattan? Yeah, it was in Manhattan, and we sold, you know, we sold all, the, all analog gear. I was there for years, I mean years. I was the kid who sold you everything. I sold everybody. Most of everybody who's done music in New York City, I've sold you stuff. And so um, I stood there because I was done mentally I was fried, I, you know, my dream got crushed, you know, of owning a label and, and working on music. So I took a little time off, you know, I went back to school while I was working at Rogue and I, uh, I became a software applications programmer. Yeah. C++, uh, Visual Basic, VB, SQLs, you know, Access, SQL Server, all that good fun Logic. So you had stuff. some coding jobs for a while? Yep. I was a coder at American International Group in their, interna- in their internal audit division for a while. Nobody knows that, so now you got the real scoop. Uh, and so music you know, music and logic are basically, they go hand in hand. You know, So if you're good at logic, you can pretty much almost... I mean, you can't buy creativity, that's for sure, but you can put one plus one together and create something. It's logic, basically.
1: So, so um, I think I remember reading that you linked up with Kerry Chandler via Rogue. Is that right. true? Yeah. So he would come in. Uh, everybody. I mean, I, I, I remember
2: selling Kenny Kenny Dope Gonzalez his gear. You know, that's how me and Kenny, you know, became friends. I don't I don't talk to Kenny about business at all. I don't talk to him. I, I I talk to Kenny as a friend. I don't I don't. It's not even about making music. Let's make records together. No, I don't know him like that. Even though we are in the same business. I never wanted it to be that. I always wanted it to be my friend, the dude I knew from when I was nobody, you know? And so Kerry was the same way. I had no idea Carrie lived down the block from me. I didn't really care. I I didn't, you gotta remember, I mean, dude, we had everybody walking and we had Prince calling. We had, we sold gear to everybody, every huge name you can think of. I dealt with them on a daily basis. I really didn't care. To me, I was already making records. I already had like two albums underneath my belt. I didn't care who you were. So you came in and you, you wanted to buy gear from me. I told you the truth. I said, don't get that piece of shit, get this. Why? Because this does this. And what are you looking to do? You're looking for bass? Okay, don't worry about that. Stop spending your money, get a Mini Moog and get it all over with. You'll be spending your money for years and only to buy the damn thing 10 years later. And it would be true. So everybody would come to me for an honest opinion. And I would sell him this gear. So Kerry, I would do the same thing with Kerry. And Kerry told me, yeah, I live in Union City. I'm like, what? You live where? It's like, dude, you live like two blocks away from me. So that poor dude, man, I I feel so bad for him. You know, I love him to death, but I feel so bad because I basically, I wanted to make music again, but I didn't know how to get back into it. Because again, you know, once your soul is kind of crushed, you just don't know how to find yourself again sometimes. And that takes a while. So... He would say, yo, D, come with me to some gigs. And we would go up to Boston. And one day we were in Boston and he played this record and the crowd went nuts, you know? And it was Kenny Bowlby and Why, Why I Sing. It was a remake of Kirk Franklin, um, Why we, um, Reason Why We Sing. And it's a gospel record. And um, I heard it and I got tears in my eyes, man. I literally, I literally even now I get, I get misty eyed from it because I remember that feeling. I I stood there and everybody was singing and everybody was chanting, Carrie, Carrie, Carrie. And he played this record and everybody went freaking nuts. And I heard the vocals, Kenny Bobian vocals. And I says, you know what? I said, this is why I want to do music. To see this. Not so everybody's chanting my name. That wasn't the reason why. It was because he was able to elicit an emotion, you get it? It was like, he touched you with a record, man. And the record touched people. And so for me, the way I interpreted this whole meaning was like, I wanna make records that touch you. That when you hear my record come on, you go, oh my God, that's my shit. And so from that day forward, I swear this is the truth. From that day forward, whenever I made a record, I remember that night, and I said, yo, when you make records, that's what you want to do. You want to associate feelings with records. You want people to remember where they were, who they were with, what happened to them. You want to associate feelings with the records you make. If you don't do that, then why are you making a record? Why are you putting whatever you felt that day into something? It makes no sense. Then don't, don't fucking make records. Don't. It's pointless. Because if you're going to give up something out of you when you make a record, then make it count. So I came home that morning with him, and I said, I want to get back into doing it. And he says, okay, well, I have the living room upstairs next to the studio. You can set up your keyboard there. And I go, all right. Three weeks later, he gives me the keys to his house. And every day I'm in his house, dude. Every day without fail, listening to what he's making, listening to when he did um, Atmosphere EP, when he did the Ionis Furies, when he did all those records that carries really known for, I was there for those. I was basically there for those. I watched that shit happen. I saw it with my very own eyes, and and it fed me. And so he used to come into the living room and go, you know, he would hear something I'm working on, and I swear this is how we would say, if he says, you sure you want to do that? And I'd be like, oh fuck, erase, delete the, delete the record. That's all he needed to tell me. Or all he had to go was like this. Shit, he does, it. even Nas does that to me. And I know that look. He goes like this, that's the Kerry look. It means I've done something wrong, you see? And so I remember this. And so Kerry just, that poor man, bro. I had the alarm codes. I had the keys to his house. I basically lived in his house until the point where the cops almost shot me one day, because they thought you were breaking in. Yeah, man. <laughs> because I, this is a true story. I did. Uh, I did an EP for Large, and it was called. The song was called "Call," and I'm playing Jeff, who owns Large Music. I'm playing him the record as I just finished it. I said, "I got a dope record for you. It's a dope. It's a super hot vocal. It's gospelly. You're gonna love it." Right. Now, I had just ran upstairs to play it for him. I totally forgot I hadn't hit the alarm code. So my friend Rob Wonderman, you know who was Carrie's management at the time, said he was coming over to visit. And I go, okay, no problem, come over. I'm playing the record full blast, and I hear somebody go, put your hands up. Put your hands up where so I can see him. Now, I think it's Rob fucking around. I'm like, yo, Rob, stop playing, man. Shut the hell up. And I go back to putting up the music. Dude, put your fucking ass up, bro. I can see him. I'm like, Jeff, you want to hold on for a minute? I'm going to put you on speakerphone. This sounds kind of weird. Could've? I put him on speakerphone. Lower down the music. Next to you, please. The guns are in my mouth. I literally, they're in my mouth, like nine millimeters in my mouth. And all you hear is Jeff going, hello, hello. Is everything okay? Are you okay? Anything? <laughs> it was crazy, man. Yeah, so that's that's the story to that Soul Collective's uh EP with a gun in my mouth. He's like, "Dude, we almost shot you. We didn't know it was a studio up here." I was like, "Oh, I'm sorry, man." So yeah, you know, and I had to explain to Carrie now why the cops were at the house. So that's basically how this happened. And then I never looked back, you know. And I promised myself, you know, with every vocal record I did, as I mentioned before, that I that I made it make sure it count. I want to see you sing. If you ain't singing, I ain't do my job.
1: Totally. Um, So tell me about Hey Hey. Yeah. what what happened when that came out? I mean, that was like that was a a bomb that like hit the dance charts in multiple countries and like was that was that that wasn't intended that that way. It,
2: It was it was at that point we were still doing we were we were on the edge of Sofa House and Techie. It was we were on that edge. We hadn't fully nobody nobody in the Sofa scene had switched over yet but I saw a change coming and the reason I saw a change coming because I already had lived the techie part. You know, I already, I already knew about techno. I knew where we were going. I didn't like it at first because I put all this work into learning, you know, chord structures and, and and keyboard playing, you know, so now I'm like, what, I got to go backwards to go forwards again. Oh, this is going to suck. So I sat down and I said, what if I can meld the two together? And since objectivity was basically a label that I, uh, another label that I, I owned Sphere before uh, with carry, And I decided objectivity would be something different where I'd have a no holds barred approach where I, I said, you know, I put out what I like. If, if it's edgy, the edgier, the better for me. I don't care. It's, it's, it's an outlet. I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm just, I just want to make cool things. Again, things that make you sing. So I wrote the lyrics to this record and I sat there and I was like, you know what? This is catchy as all hell. I'm like, and I was thinking about, you know, when 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 girls walk by and you know, the construction workers would whistle be like, yo, hey, baby, hey, hey, you know, things like that. I said, what if we, if I did a record like that, but I made it sad? Everybody thinks, Hey, hey, is a is a happy record. Hey, hey, is not a happy record. It's a sad record. It's actually, if you listen to the lyrics, it's sad, you know? And that's how I was feeling at the time in the middle of a relationship. You know, you can always tell where I am in a relationship by hearing my songs, but I think that's everybody, you know, what, what I, whatever we write. Um, and that's, I just wrote that record. And um, Shingi, Shaniwa, who was with the Noisettes, was in town for some photo shoots while she was signed to Mercury. And I said, well, could you sing on this record? And we won't say it was you. You know, maybe we can make, we can play, do a play on words and say, you know, Miss Noise. So Mercury wasn't none too happy about that. They were like, no, if she does it, no affiliation. Just, you know, no credit, nothing. Just, but because I wrote the song anyway. You know, I wrote all the lyrics, you know, I I did all the production work. So she was more like a work for hire. And I love her. I, I love her to death. She's amazing. She's an amazing singer. She came in, you know. She knocked it out, got paid, dipped out, and we thought nothing of it. We said, oh, that's a house record. You know, what's it going to do? You know, if we sell 5,000 copies, we'd be, we were lucky, right? And all of a sudden, like three weeks later, the record's just insanely blowing up and we can't stop it. Can't stop it. And it just, it just went like viral. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And it was actually underground, believe it or not. When it first came out, the first two, three weeks, it was actually underground. It was nothing like it. There was nothing I wouldn't like it. And then it just went nuts and I couldn't stop it. So then, which was really funny was a reviewer for RA, for your guys, reviewed it and then said, I wouldn't be surprised if he disappears for a minute. He nailed it. Your reviewer nailed it. Because you were like, the block is too hot. I got to get out of here. Like- and he nailed it. Everybody knew. Everybody around me knew what I was going to do, but not anybody outside of my inner circle except for the reviewer for RA, and I always looked at that, and I went, yo, he knew what I was going to do. I popped my head out, and then I chilled out for a while. If you notice, I chilled out for a while and cooled it off. I had to, because everybody was going to expect me to do Hey haze. and I was never Hey haze. I was just good
1: songs. If they happen to be hits, it's just luck. But you could have chosen another path where you indulge that even more. You know what I mean? Because some people would be yeah, like, oh, this is a great formula. I'm I wouldn't be around today. Exactly.
2: I wouldn't be around today. And that's the, that's, the, that's the truth. I wouldn't have been around today. I would have blew my load. It had just been like, there you go. Okay, take the money and run. It took a lot, even now, to back out of what the perception of me was. You know, It took a lot. It's, it's, and I still work at it today. You know, because once you get, once you stigmatized with that perception, it's like, dude, but that's not what defined me. That record didn't define me. I mean, you fuckers forgot about Sandcastles, you know, Timbuktu, you know, uh, Deep Penetration, uh, uh, The Back Door. I mean, Son of Raw. Everybody forgot about those records. Underground is my home. I mean... I was never, hey, hey, I could do hey, hey, so I'm blue in the face. I can do those when my eyes closed, dime a dozen. Everybody wishes I could do that so they can get paid. But I realized early that I wouldn't be around too long. And I didn't do this to make, I, don't, I didn't get in this business to make money and leave. This for me was a lifestyle. I don't know nothing else. This is me waking up in the morning. If I can't do what I love, then what, do, what am I gonna do? So am I gonna jeopardize what I love to do just for the sake of a few dollars? Nah, man. The dollars is in the longevity.
1: Well, it seems like you've chosen like a pretty sustainable path. Like you you didn't blow out, you're not like actually one of the things I want to ask you about is like the balance between staying hip with the new sounds while also remaining genuine to yourself. You know what I mean? Well, that's,
2: that's a musician just being a musician. Every musician wants to learn. He wants to learn new chord progressions. He wants to learn new, new fingerings. He wants, to, he wants to play with the newest drum machine that may sound different than the 20 other ones he has. Um, you know, when you see a kid come up and he does an amazing record, you, you know. Okay, here goes the thing. When I was 18 and I was making records, right, and I heard a, an amazing record by someone else, I wanted to kick that record's ass. All right? I wasn't trying to be your friend. Now we can be friends after, after the studio session. But while I'm making my record, I would A and B it. And I'd have to say, yo, my record's got to be, my worst record's got to be better than your good record. If my worst record ain't better than your good record, I'm still not done with this record. Back to the drawing board. And so I kept that up. That's never left me. That, that bit of competitive fire has never left me. And some people say, oh, D, but it's art. To a point, it's art. Yes, to a point. But you've got to have inner desire, that inner fire to want to learn, to want to be better, to want to make better records. So if a new style comes out, look, I, like I tell everybody, I'm, I make dance music. Is it house? Yeah, it might be house today. Is it techno? It might be techno tomorrow. It might be a different genre in 10 years. But, what I do is dance music, and if somebody's eighteen to thirty five dancing in the club and they're calling that dance music, then that's what I want to make just because I'm an old ass man at that point doesn't want to doesn't mean I don't want to be cool. Everybody wants to remain and be cool,
1: but there's also a certain type of like thirsty, inauthentic of course contrived way of doing that, and I it's, feel like you as someone who's been able to really balance that in a way where you're you're staying up with what's new but you're being you you know
2: because if you can't the rule was and this was this was the rule that was instituted by carrie jerome and everybody around me at that time when i was growing when i was learning music look you can do afro house right but make sure it's authentic afro house that it doesn't sound cheesy you get it so if you had Tony Allen on the drums and it just happened to be house, it's Tony Allen on the drums. It's authentic. Now you get horn players, you get horn section, you play that. You get the cheesy Casio keyboard from the 1970s to do those chord progressions and those chord stabs, just like Fela. You made sure that it sounded authentic. So the same thing applies. If you're going to do techno today, well, you need to, you, you need to know what techno is. that's just it. You do it authentic. You know, Carl, Craig, you know, Richie, Early Richie, all of that stuff. Those dudes were techno, you know? So that that has remained my rule. Whatever the music goes, wherever I go, if I'm going to do it, if I can't do it, then I need to learn how to do it until it sounds authentic. And only when it sounds authentic and I think I've got something good, I'll let somebody else hear it. And then if, if like 10 people tell me it's a it's an incredible record, then I'll let it go. Dude, I've got a hard drive for like 100 records that nobody, only Nas has heard it, you know. And, and, Coast, if, and you're like, yeah, they're not coming out because <laughs> they're garbage, you know. But then they're great ideas in 10 years. And you go, oh, wait, you know, maybe this will work.
1: I want to change the subject a little sure. bit. Um, and so a, a lot of people who were around and playing out in the 90s get, pretty nostalgic about all the places we've talked about like Mm. limelight and um the sort of like great clubs of yesteryear and i i wanted to ask you do you do you find that people are kind of wearing like rose-tinted glasses like do you think that it's like looking backwards it's like a little nostalgic or you know what i mean like the way it's been Uh, historically sort of canonized
2: it's been canonized because people always like what what they grew up with it's a memory. They, they have memories associated. Dude, you can't be 40 years old now and, and get a memory like that. You know, the, you got the kids. You got the job in the morning. Dude, when you were 18, you didn't give a shit about that. Let's be, let's be honest. You know, so, yeah, you got ripped off your brain. You, you lost, like, 20 million brain cells that night. Yeah, you did something you weren't supposed to be doing. Yeah, that, that's a fond memory. So everything's going to be rose tinted glasses after that. But to tell you the truth, man, I've been to some of the most incredible venues lately. And it's to me, it's the same. Dude, I've seen incredulous things that I, I'd be ashamed to say I, 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 I visualized and I saw. And I'm like, dude, that would have never happened at Limelight. And I've seen a lot of shit at Limelight.
1: Okay. Like, oh, yes, the freaks are alive and well yeah, in 2018. So, <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I've seen
2: it with my very own eyes and I'm like... Wow. That's even extreme for limelight. Okay. So it's, it's, everybody likes to look fondly back on memories. At this point in time, let's just keep it moving. Mm -hmm. There's tons of amazing places that you should have fun and visit and and enjoy the experience. And I'm sure if you let go a little bit, let go of that history, I'm sure you make
1: and create new memories for yourself. Um, And on the same subject, this is like a slightly darker point, but it's something I've been talking about with a few different New York artists who have Mm -hmm. been in the game for a while. Um, Something that some people often talk about is what happened with 9-11 in 2001 and how that changed the culture of the city and how you could feel that its impact in music and nightlife and arts. And it was sort of this like fucked up psychic energy. Is that something that resonates with you? That didn't change shit here.
2: Changed it for about six months when nobody could go out gigging. That's bull, that's bull crap, man. That, all right. That 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 didn't change the scene. People felt bad. We all felt bad. We felt horrible. It's, a bit, it's, it's, it's an absolutely horrible thing that happened. Did it change the musical landscape? Clubbing? No, it didn't. It didn't. It really did And what changed clubbing was the Giuliani laws, the Giuliani era with the cabaret laws and, and, you know, the quality of life that changed, that had more to do with changing New York's nightlife than anything anybody can make up anything. I mean, they locked it down. They locked New York down. And also we slept, we slipped up. There was, there was no musical innovation coming out. Let's, let's, let's be honest wasn't like we were being innovative music musically i mean that that was all happening in europe you know the germans took that over you know that was like a dead patch for new york dude nobody nobody nope we were still trying to do the same old same old holding on to you know to our old rose-tinted glasses oh still trying to do gospel records when you know if you played that overseas the, the floor would walk off but no we still wanted to play it here no man it times changed kids kids they, they dipped out from that, you know? I told everybody. I was like, yo, man, nah, and everybody got mad at me. They thought I was crazy. You no, know, I, I wanna play, like I said, I wanted to play to a, a club full of 3,000 screaming, you know, young adults, not to people who need babysitters. I'm sorry, that's just the truth, you know? And New York was slow to it. You know, the, the laws changed, the clubs f- failed. You know, Brooklyn was just developing. And then Brooklyn ran the gauntlet. They got hip and they got Europeans. And, you know, Europeans basically
1: took over the,
2: the, the house market. It's not a bad thing. It's an excellent thing. It had to grow.
1: Well, a lot, of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of DJs who are successful in the United States end up moving to Europe because that's where the market is and that's where the crowd is. Like, is that something you ever considered? It like, was always there.
2: There's nothing been different. We always gigged over there more than we gigged over here that that that's just bull if you hear, if somebody told you that's bull crap we've always gigged more in europe mm-hmm. we've al- the united states has always been a hip hop nation mm-hmm. it will always be a hip hop nation always because of the influence minorities have on music culture here that's it when, when you know house music in a minority in an ethnic neighborhood where i came from was considered um not cool it just wasn't at that time you know it was all about drugs guns beats rhymes bitches hoes you know house music was like oh so you gonna you, oh, you, you gonna you gonna play that gay shit tomorrow night right D you see and and that that's why it never took hold here really hard you know EDM EDM was different EDM was like a phenomenon you know and that took hold in suburbia it was, that's a suburbia thing that somehow magically transformed it's, itself into the city. You know, but otherwise, no, man, we've always, it's always been overseas for us. Always. So it, it, it's, it's been tough. Look, you don't do dance music because you're going to get rich. Not real dance music. Not underground shit. No, I'm sorry. It's like Phil Damien, used to come into Rogue, right? A friend of mine called Phil Damien. Um, he used to come into Rogue he called it sneaker money. <laughs> I used to laugh. I would be like, what are you talking about sneaker money? Hey, yeah, I get it. It's, sne- it's sneaker money. Hey, yo, you know the reason why they call it house music, right? I'm like, why? Because you can only afford to make it in your house. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this, this is, this is, this is art of, the art of love.
1: Let's talk about how you linked up with the Martinez brothers. Okay. Um, So, you know, like the way you talk about Kerry Chandler was that he was kind of a mentor to you and then you were kind of a mentor to them. So how did you guys get linked up? Uh, Well, at that time when MySpace was popular, I had a page up um, and young
2: Chris had hit me up. I think he was like 13 or 14 at the time. And um, he said he was a DJ. And I, I always admired that. You know, I always admired people, especially young kids who were ballsy enough to be like, look, listen to my CD. He was 14, man. Who the hell does that? Like, that's ballsy, okay? That was ballsy. And I'm like, and he was a fan, and I was like, yo, send me the CD. And I heard the CD. It's like, yo, this kid is good. And then he tells me, but can I bring my brother with me? My brother's a little older, and, you know, he plays too. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I just heard you, really, you know. And so I had a night at the shelter where Jerome sent him one night, and uh, I was about to play, and I wanted to make something fun that night. I said, "You know what? Let's do something different. Like, you know, it's, it's, I'm bored. You know, I need to have. I need to do something crazy for some inspiration." So I asked my management. I said, "How, how can we get two young kids under the legal age of entering any establishment, uh, drinking laws that is?" How do we get them into a club so they can play? Well, they told us they can only come after the bar is closed, which is 4 a.m. So me and Jerome would have to play at 4 a.m. To, I mean, we'd have to play from, you know, our slots to 4 a.m. Then the boys could come in and play as artists. So that's what we did. From 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's right. Yeah. So we waited till 4 a.m. and we brought the two boys with us. And Jerome was like, what the f- like, what are you doing, basically, D? Like, I was like, don't worry, man. This is going to be cool. It's going to be really cool. They got on and they rocked it. And everybody's like, what? Taking pictures and stuff. I wish they were here right now so I could ask them about that night. Yeah, it was, <laughs> like, that, was, that was, it was so cute. It was, that, that, that was a cute night. That was sweet. It was so young, man. Did their dad drive them to the club? Yeah, yeah. Their yeah. dad was with them, too. Yeah, senior was there with them. And uh, it was great. You know, and that's that's how it started. It was really sweet. It was a really sweet relationship with them.
1: So, what were some of the things that you you tried to impart on them? Um, like, what were some of the lessons that that you tried to transmit?
2: The same thing I've always told everybody. <laughs> you know, I'm really I, I'm sorry because I'm very opinionated. You know, and I feel bad sometimes I say things that I shouldn't say, but I, I just kind of feel they need to be said. Uh, it's the same things I tell Nas. You know. I tell them like you know, make sure your your, your worst record is better than somebody's good record. Uh, be straight up with everybody, you know. Don't don't suck your own Johnson and believe your own hype. You know, it was just basic things, you know. I taught them about production, being there, you know what I mean. Just being a good overall person to try to teach somebody because I think that's what if you're in this music business, I think that's what you should do. You need to share this. You don't own this. Nobody owns this. This was a gift that was given to me. And I feel that I haven't done my part in life if I don't give that gift back. You know, if I don't give you the ability, the skill to make a record, you still have to be, you still have to have that creative energy, that creative skill. You still have to be an artist. But if I can teach you how to, bring that out. If I can give you the skill set to bring that out, then I think to me that's that's a beautiful thing. That that that's you can't that's a gift. So that gift was given to me and I have to share that gift. And I think anybody who doesn't do that, who doesn't share that gift with somebody they believe deserves it, I think you're fucked up. Straight up. I think you're greedy. I think you don't deserve the gift that's been given to you. You share. I don't give a shit. You share. EQ. You you don't don't know how, you you know, why hide the way you EQ a kick? Why hide the kick you use? Nobody's going to use the same drums the same exact way you use them. A bass sound. Really? You're going to hide a bass sound from somebody because you're afraid they can't make it? Dude, I can recreate any bass sound you do in two seconds. That's how long I've been doing this. Really? I wouldn't use it the same way you use it anyway. So what's the point in holding on to things, holding on to sound libraries like, like, like Gollum, like The Precious? What are you, crazy, dude? Share. That's what this art is for, It's for sharing. Sharing your feelings and sharing what you've learned over the years, what you've accumulated, so that you can pass this on and that person can pass on that knowledge.
1: This sounds like a very like open source uh, software kind of mindset.
2: It is. It has to be. It has to be, because that's what, it was done, that's what was done to me. Nobody nobody hogged up anything with me. That's how I learned. Listen, I learned from basically an ambient God, from Tetsu Noe. I went to Damon Wilde, who was like Mr. Acid King. I went to Kerry Chandler, who was Mr. House. I went to Jerome Sindham. I've learned, I, I can't count the number of people that I've learned from, and nobody told me no. So who am I to say no? Now, whether you deserve it, that's a whole different conversation. Whether you got the desire and the hunger, that's another conversation. But if you have that desire and that hunger and I see that, I'm going to let it out. Now, what you do with it, that's on you.